All right, thank you, Oliver. Oliver, could you also grab 30 blank pieces of paper, printer paper for me? Thanks. Well, welcome. Good evening. Welcome to our Sunday evening Bible study. We're beginning tonight a brand new series on biblical leadership. And we're just going to jump right in. In the life of the church, I think this has to be one of the most important topics. We would say that local churches live and die by their leadership. Ministries live and die by their leadership. You want to pass these out before I get going? This is your handout for tonight. It's a blank piece of paper. There will be no handouts for this series. Instead, this, tonight's your only uh, leeway, giving you something to write on. But I actually want to put a challenge to you for Sunday nights and Wednesday nights to make a little bit of a, a culture shift in the church to get yourself one of these, ancient technology. It's called a notebook. But something you, you keep with you. It's with you every week. It goes with your Bible that you're taking your notes in a notebook, it's just you're expanding it, and you're writing prayer requests in it, that you're not just writing on a, on a attendance sheet or a, a bulletin and discarding it as, it's, as if it's a trivial thing, but start recording prayer sheets and, and prayer requests over years with a notebook. I have some old notebooks from my college group going back to the beginning of those days, and sometimes even looking back on old prayer requests, see some given, some answered, some not answered, but it's still a joy. So I just want to put a little challenge out to you. There's not going to be, you know, I'd basically just given you a blank piece of paper with a little outline on it. You could do that yourself on your own notebook and just give you something, a little consistency and a place to, to gather prayer requests. So that's on you. Challenge given. Get yourself a notebook if you want to be a note taker in this series. I, I hope you do. Tonight, you can have a blank piece of paper though. But next, next week, we're not going to be so generous. We're not, just, we're not just going to give these things out for free. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, you know, ministries, they live and die by their leadership. You know, if those steering the ship are going the wrong way, everyone else on board is doomed as well. This is the importance of leadership, especially biblical leadership in the church. And by way of introduction, I would just have you all think back to maybe some of your previous church experiences, just to yourself. You know, some of you have been through many churches, lots of different local churches, different areas. And think about all the churches that you've been to, and if, if there are any that have gone through a, a season of decline or division or even split. And I would bet you that in the vast majority of cases, the primary reason for a church's demise, it's not its people as sinful as they might be, we're, we're all sinners, but it's leaders. Most of the time when we hear of church splits or divisiveness, it usually has something to do with Leaders, leaders gone astray, ungodly leaders, unqualified elders, pastoral division, some sort of power struggle at the top, and that really spells a quick end to the local church or any ministry. So listen, I would say it's not the children's ministry that makes or breaks a local church. It's not the youth group. It's not the praise band. It's not even the building. It's the leadership that will make or break in the long run, I believe, a, a local church. So this is the importance of biblical leadership. Tell me, in your own words, give me a few takes here. Why is leadership so important in the church? A few reasons. This will be interactive. I will be asking questions, and if I get silence for long enough, I'll just start calling names. So I'll give you a chance. Why is leadership so important in the church? A few takes. Ruth Ann?
Yeah, so Ruth Ann comments really just the power of example, positive and negative. The negative example to lead people astray. If the people, it's often said that people will never rise higher than their leadership in holiness and passion for the Lord. And if the leaders are lukewarm and, and tolerating sin, that's going to give a lot of people a license to think, well, it's not so bad for him. I guess I can do that too. But that works the other way as well with a positive example. And Rod, you had one? Yeah, very, pretty much the same. Yeah, that's really good. Everything will rise and fall. They, they set the tide, they, they set the standard, and the church will follow. Let me explain it from this angle. What's our greatest threat? Sin. What does sin do to people? It divides them. It tears us apart. Why is that a problem in the church especially? When God saved us, he made us to be one body. He knit us together into one body. The glory of the gospel Part of the glory is that it brings us back together. It redeems and then reconciles us to God and to others. And that unity is essential to the church's mission. But even as believers, sin still constantly threatens to tear us apart and to divide people, to set us against one another, doesn't it? That's, that's sin doing what it does. Think of all the division in your life. That's just sin doing what it does. Listen to, listen to Ephesians 4, 2 and 3. It says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why do you think that command is needed? I'll, I'll call on you, Grace. Because you're given, you know the answer. Why do you think that command is needed to, to preserve the bond of unity? Yeah, absolutely. That's the, within our fallen nature still, and, and even after salvation, that the flesh wants us to divide. And uh, we need to, by the Spirit, work real hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You come to salvation, you are given the unity of the Spirit. There's one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as he says right after. There's one Spirit. We are one. But you must preserve the experience of that unity in peace. That's, that's our work we must do. So we have to work hard at that. Now the weak, the young, the immature in the faith, they're easily taken down and torn apart by sin. But this is where God uses mature, godly leaders to keep people together. And not just keep the church together, but have them growing up as well. To grow up into the fullness of Christ, as he says later in Ephesians chapter 4. But if the leaders themselves are being torn apart by sin and are divided and divisive, forget about it. It's, you, it's already game over. That church will divide or will decline, will, will suffer. And didn't Christ say that in part that the world would come to know him through our unity, through the display of our supernatural oneness? This unity of the spirit is a major part of our witness and the church's mission So you can see more and more how essential biblical leadership is. God has designed and ordained to use leaders in his church to keep his people together and to lead them on their mission. We need that. Now, speaking of the vital role of leadership in accomplishing the mission of the church, I want to explore that further. What is the Great Commission? Go to the world, preach the gospel to all the nations. 
And in specific, the Great Commission command, it is not to make converts. It is to make disciples. And there is a difference. Making converts, that is merely the first step. That's just the beginning. That's not the end. You haven't arrived. That's step one, by God's grace, to see a a convert. This is where you might have a a bit of a criticism against some of the modern crusades. Like Billy Graham did his final crusade back in 2004, he still had 12,000 decisions for Christ. And you see a lot of these crusaders go around, and that's what they kind of tout and will, will, you might say, take a little pride in. Look at, look at our organization. Look how many decisions for Christ we have. They treat it as mission accomplished, and then they pack up, and they move on to the next city, the next stadium. Like, we got our decisions. Just move on to the next city. Is that our mission? Is that the church's mission, to just make converts? No, it's to make disciples. And so you would see a contrast with the Apostle Paul who, after times when he would reap, by God's grace, a large harvest of converts, well, he would stay in that city for one to three years, like Corinth, like Ephesus. He's like, well, I guess I'm here now. There's a lot of people to disciple. I can't move on. That's discipleship. Where would we go to find the Great Commission text? Does anyone know? Matthew 28. Turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. 19 through 20, or you might say 18 through 20, to include Christ's claim of authority. It's a verse to memorize if you haven't. Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew's gospel, it obviously shows a punchline of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'll read as you keep turning. Verse 18, after the resurrection, Jesus came up, spoke to them, his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Look at verse 19, verse 20. What is the main command? There's only one. What is the main command in verse 18, verse 19. It's not go. It's make disciples. It's make disciples. In the Greek, make disciples is an aorist active imperative. That means a command. It's the only command here. What's the object of this command? It's to make disciples of the nations. So the, the object of the command is to make disciples of the nations, all the nations. No longer Jews only, Jews and Gentiles. What does it mean to make a disciple? Maybe according to the text, what does it mean to make a disciple? Teach them all that Christ said, and also baptize them. There are three participles in this verse, verse 19, 20, and they flesh out the command. That's go, or it's really having gone, technically. It's, you could say going, uh, baptizing, and teaching. Those are three participles. In this case, they all basically modify the main command. The main command is to make disciples. The other three participles explain it. They they tell us what that means, what it looks like. You make disciples by going. That's really the the assumption. You've already gone. And then you baptize, and then you teach. This is an ongoing process. Baptism, that's the one-time act marking the beginning of a disciple's new life in Christ. That's conversion. Baptism being the the recognizing ordinance that they have come to Christ. That's a one-time thing. Then comes teaching. 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. This is the ongoing side of it, the ongoing command here, or, or aspect of the command. The key word, though, it's not just teach. Teaching them, did he say, you know, make, make some disciples, baptize them, and then just teach them all that I said? What's missing? Teach them what? To observe. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. It's not just to know his word, which we, we know is in, in scripture. It's to live it out. It's to follow Christ. And so how long does that take? It doesn't take too long to give people all the, the data, the theology of Christianity. But to live it all out, that's a lifelong process. This is lifelong discipleship. Making disciples doesn't end. This is the great commission or mission of the church. It is to make disciples. And although discipleship never ends on, on a practical level, do you know when you can say you've made a disciple? I would say that when they become a discipler themselves, when they have been reproduced, so now they are disciple makers themselves, then you've made a pretty good disciple. And that's how the church grows and multiplies and fulfills its mission. We've got to reach all the nations. Can't do that by yourself. The 12 couldn't do it. They've got to make more disciples and more and more and just spread out. Go and make disciples. If you think of a family tree, parents having a bunch of kids. But if their kids never get married and have their own kids, the parents will never know the joy of being a grandparent. And their family tree will remain small. At most, parents can have 20 kids, if you're the Duggars, I guess, right? 20 max. But if their kids don't have their own kids, the family tree will remain small. And when that generation dies out, the family name will die out with it. That's just how it will be. But instead, for the family tree to grow and thrive and survive, well, the kids eventually have to start having their own kids and so on and so on. And after a few generations, there would be hundreds in that family tree. And likewise in the church, to see the family tree grow and the name of Christ spread, spiritual disciples eventually have to grow up and start making their own disciples and start carrying on the mission and, and, and tell people about Christ. And this is the mission of the church. Its focus is discipleship. And that necessitates reproduction to make a disciple maker. And wouldn't it be great if everyone was a disciple maker? You'd be pretty, you'd be in good shape. You'd be a pretty good local church. Okay, turn to Numbers 11. Let's keep going here. Numbers 11. I've had some talks with some of you about leadership the past few weeks, and this is a, an example I've used, and I figured let's study it. It's a, a good text to, to draw an example from. Numbers chapter 11. And you can get down to verse 16 in a moment. The context here, it's in the Exodus. God has provided the people manna, but they're tired of manna. They're tired of this bread all day, this bread flour all day. And what do you know? They start complaining to Moses and what do they want this time? Now they want meat. But they're just this, the multitude of people. They're bringing all their concerns and their burdens and their complaints and their questions and their troubles to Moses. Moses, he's the guy. He's the man, the prophet, the representative. He's overwhelmed. He says in verse 11, Moses cries out to God, why have you laid the burden of all this people on me? 
He says, verse 14, I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. Moses couldn't hope to bear the burdens of all these people by himself, all their questions and complaining and criticisms and concerns. He couldn't handle it all. So he cries out to God for just an exasperation. He cries out for help. God answers, verse 16. The Lord therefore said to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting. Let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the spirit who's upon you and will put him upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. You can see here God's own divine strategy for multiplying ministry, bearing the burdens of others, so to multiply leadership. God calls on Moses to find 70. What was a basic requirement for these 70 here in verse 16? They had to be what? What's that? Someone saying elders? Elders. And with that came basic character requirements. To be an elder among Israel came with it, obviously, basic character and reputation requirements. So they had to be men above reproach. What was going to qualify them to share the burden with Moses? What was God going to do for them to help them? He's going to, he's going to share a little bit of the Holy Spirit with them that Moses had. And then what would be the main duty of them? End of verse 17. What was just their main job? To, yeah, that's right, to bear the burdens of all the people. And we're talking a multitude of two million plus after the Exodus to, to share that load of shepherding, ministry. And so this happens down to verse 24. God sends the Spirit upon them. Verse 24. It says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also, he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the Spirit who is upon him, Moses, and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. So, interesting, God assembles the 70, they, they gather, they're given the Holy Spirit, which as you know in the Old Testament, came upon servants for times of equipping them for ministry, and they prophesied, but only once. And it mentions explicitly, they did not do it again. Why might you think it says they prophesied but once and not again? Any, uh, any guesses or just re- uh, reasoning here? Ruthann? Maybe, maybe you're right. That's right. Yep, that's, that's it. You know, the purpose, the reason they prophesied once was to establish their credentials as spirit-empowered leaders. Remember, well, the purpose of all the sign gifts was to attest to the authority of the speaker. And the power came in, in the word, though, in the ministry of God's word. At the same time, Moses was the prophet. He was the representative of the people. Then he was to remain that way. But he wanted the rest of the camp to recognize that these 70 were God's validated leaders. And so they were given prophecy and the sign of, the sign of prophecy to show that once. But Moses would retain the mantle of being the mouthpiece, the divine mouthpiece for the people. 
Now, a little bit more though. Look at verse 26. It says, but two men had remained in the camp. That means two of the elders. So two of the 70 weren't able to, to show up for that meeting. It says the name of one was Eldad, the name of the other Medad, and the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and, and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. So apparently two of the 70 elders didn't make it to that meeting. They remained still in the camp of Israel. But nonetheless, when the spirit came upon these 70, it came upon those two as well. And so they prophesied just where they were. They started speaking the word of God to the people around them with authority. And some people who were devoted to Moses, loyal to Moses, saw this, didn't know what was going on at first, and were worried that these guys might be trying to usurp Moses' role as leader. Like a little insurrection was forming. Because I thought only Moses was the prophet. And so they run and tell Moses that these these other guys are, are doing what you do you got to deal with this. Otherwise, you could have a little insurrection on your hands. And if you know your Exodus history, there were several attempted insurrections against Moses in the time. So they come up to Moses. They tell him what's going on. And how do you think he's going to respond to this news? Verse 29. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. In this verse, like I said, I've mentioned to several of you in, in the past weeks, this, this just captures the heart of every true leader. What's Moses expressing here, this desire? It's to see everyone be a leader, a minister, a shepherd, a prophet. Moses wished everyone was a leader, that everyone had the spirit, and that everyone could know God's word and communicate God's word. He wished that everyone would partake in bearing the burdens of God's people. What if everyone had the Holy Spirit and could join him in bearing the burdens of one another? They'd be in a lot better shape. I remember in my old college group when we were just getting started, I'd raise up my first little leader, a little small group leader. I think I was like 24 at the time. This, this guy was like 20. And anyway, I'd give him a little small group to lead. He met with a group of guys. Now, I distinctly remember one day, we, had a, we started off as a Friday night Bible study back then, and he came up to me, he's very concerned, because some of the other guys in the group were now coming up to him directly with their questions and just kind of their issues. And he's very concerned. He's like, why aren't they going to you? They're coming to me now. Shouldn't they be coming to you? And now, if you were maybe insecure in your leadership ability or your authority, that might bother you. You might like, I must have full control over everyone. But I remember telling him like, the, that's, you know, this is the point. This is why we were raising you up to, to do this, that they should be coming to you now. You are there, even though you're just a young guy, you're 20, they're still younger than you in the faith. And uh, you minister to them, let them come to you and, and you, you help them, you bear their burdens. And that's the whole point. We need to multiply leadership that the shepherding of God's people might increase, that others would help bear the burdens of the multitude. It's, it's too much for one or two or three or four or 12 to handle. We need, we need everyone. Just think if everyone was a burden bearer. 
And I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to apply the, the essence of the lesson in Numbers 11 to today. And we could say, would that all of God's people were shepherds? Not just prophets, but shepherds. What if everyone in the church thought like a shepherd, prayed like a shepherd, acted like a shepherd? I'd say you would have a pretty healthy local church if everyone was shepherd-minded. Take some maturity, but I'll say it again, you'd be in pretty good shape. And here's the exciting news is now that we're living in the new covenant, we've got one thing. God has given all of us the Holy Spirit within, permanently indwelling. That's done. So in the most fundamental sense, what qualified those 70 elders the most was the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in the most fundamental sense, we've all been at a base level qualified to minister to others and to to bear the burdens of others simply by nature that we've been given the Holy Spirit. You realize in the New Testament church, there's no more priestly class. In the Old Testament, if you weren't a Levite, you couldn't be priest. Or at least you shouldn't. They disobeyed a lot. But technically, if you weren't a Levite, you should not be a priest. And if you weren't of the tribe of Judah, at least in the south, you couldn't be king. You had, you're just disqualified from the beginning. You have no chance. But you see, the New Testament teaches the priesthood of all believers. We've all been given the same spirit. We're all made ministers and enabled to shepherd one another. We should be doing that. It's an amazing truth when you think about it. it there's a little you know, paradigm shift that takes place in your mind. You start growing, you become a little more mature, and you realize, I don't have to be a paid pastor or an elder to be shepherd-minded. And, and, and you change. When you get that in your mind that we're all called to be like this, it changes you, and that's how you change a church. And that's how you really grow a church, to help people see themselves as not just a recipient We're all sheep. I'm a sheep. You're a sheep of Christ, but we're all called to be in one level or another under shepherds, I would argue. You know, the Catholic Church really misses out on this, where they've retained that priestly division carried over wrongly from the Old Testament, misunderstanding of the Old and New Covenants. So in the Catholic Church, there is a special class of holy men, the clergy, and they make a distinct division, clergy and everyone else, the laity. And if If you aren't clergy, you are not a leader. No matter what, if you're not part of the clergy at some level, you're just a sheep in the pew and that you just do what you do, but you're not a leader by any stretch of the imagination. But not so in the New Testament church. There's a place for the special leader, the elder, the pastor, those especially gifted and called to lead. And we'll talk more about that role later, but all are made partakers of the spirit. All should be at some basic level, ministers unto one another. Just get that straight. Have as your mission to be a shepherd, to be those who bear the burdens of one another. By the way, that's a one another command. That's just for everybody to bear the burdens of one another. So ask yourself rhetorically, do you see yourself as, as a shepherd, shepherd-minded? And I would encourage you, by the qualification of the Holy Spirit given to you, to begin to see yourself as a shepherd and then to grow into a godly shepherd, an equipped shepherd, a trained shepherd. Side note, if you're a husband, you already are a leader and a shepherd, just by definition. Uh, A good one, a bad one, I don't know. But you are one. You are a leader. Fathers, same thing. Mothers, you too. You are leaders, shepherds, partnering with your husbands over your children. So, 
any parent, this is all for you. Even if you never apply this to the church, this is all going to be for you as well. Now, when it comes to the church, though, at the same time, not everyone is ready to lead out in front. We all should be doing the one another's at all times, but to, to get out in front, to be in the 70, not everyone is ready right away. I mean, it would be great if everyone were like that, but we all are at different levels, and that's fine. Moses had to select the 70, and the point is not everyone was ready to be among the 70. These were the elders who had proven themselves faithful, godly, mature, qualified, and that comes with time and God's grace and growth and training and so forth. And in the church, people are at different maturity levels, and we all got to start somewhere. We all start at the bottom. New believers continue to come into the church. They're starting on ground level, and that's perfectly fine. They know very little about the faith. They're not mature. They need those who are more mature and who are a few levels up in the faith to come alongside them and to help them grow. So we still need special leaders, those to really get out in front of others and, and say, you know, as I follow Christ, you follow me. And since this process of discipleship is ongoing, the church constantly needs the mature and the faithful to rise up as leaders and help disciple the new and the young in the faith. Even for a church to have one or two or more paid pastors, the burdens of all the people is too much to bear for one or two or three guys. Any church that starts to grow, even a little bit of growth, life is full of trouble and everyone's got trouble. And, uh, and, you, and we all need one another to help us run the race, endure, bear one another's burdens. And one or two is still not enough. Others must be raised up to assist. And look, obviously in one sense, leaders are called, but in another sense, they must be trained and developed. God will gift and qualify some, but he entrusts the church to train and develop them. So let's, let's take that thought and run with it a little bit the need to, to actively train leaders. Turn to 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Oliver uh, mentioned this verse this morning. We can look at it a little bit more right now. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Second Timothy 2, as you're turning, someone give me the, the overall context of 2 Timothy Maybe raise a hand. Be strong. Who is Paul writing to? Timothy. When in Paul's life is he writing? Someone knows the answer? Pop a hand up. Grace? The end. This is the end. This is the final letter. Getting ready to, to, to pass on, finish the race. And Second Timothy is all about Paul passing the mantle to Timothy. It's his final exhortations to, now I would say, he's not young Timothy, maybe he's middle-aged Timothy at this point, but he's passing the mantle. He's final words that Timothy would take up the call to, to shepherd others and churches. So let's just look at verse 2 for a second. Well, verse 1, verse 2, he says, You therefore, my son, his son in the faith, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things... Which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, verse 2 the things which you've heard from me. What's he talking about? What are those things? 
Guesses? Educated, educated guesses? Okay. The, the Christ, the way of salvation, how to lead. A good rule of thumb, if when you're trying to answer a question like that, check the context. And if you back up a little bit to chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, you get a little bit of guidance. And you're all mostly on track. I mean, it's just, it's just the faith, the, the core of the faith, the gospel, we would say. Verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Nearly the same phrase, which you have heard from me. What, what's he heard? The standard of sound words. He says, in the faith and love which were in Christ Jesus. A guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So he's talking about the essentials of the faith, the gospel. In a word, it would be the gospel. This is the treasure that he has been entrusted with that he has heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses. So back to chapter two, verse two, the things you've heard from me, the essence of the gospel, the essentials of the faith. He's to take that, that treasure and verse two, what is he to do with it? One word and trust and trust it, pass it on. He's been given a treasure back at chapter one, verse 14, where he was told to guard the treasure entrusted to him not selfishly, he has received the gospel from youth. We'll learn later in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, right? He received the gospel. He's got the treasure. He needs to guard it, to, to defend the faith, to hold the standard of sound words. But not alone. He, he, eventually, Timothy's going to die too. He's got to pass it on. So you, you guard that treasure, but at the same time, you take the treasure entrusted to you. Now you entrust it to others. Now it's your turn to entrust the treasure to others. And who does he entrust it to? Faithful men. Only one requirement given here, faithful. Men who are faithful. This would be in contrast to chapter 1, verse 15, where he mentions, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagelus and Hermogenes. And he lists many others who were not faithful. Timothy needs to find those who are faithful. It just simply means of the faith and committed. They have proven themselves that the real deal. They follow Christ. They're not perfect, but they're faithful. They're in. They're all in. They're in the race, not falling away. They're strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. They're faithful. And that's not it though. Paul tells Timothy, you've got the treasure of the gospel. It's been entrusted to you. You heard it from me. Now you entrust it to these guys, these faithful men, but there's a problem because they're going to die too. And this church might go on for a few more years. So Paul, I'm about to die. Timothy, you got work to do, but you're not going to last that much longer. These faithful men, that's great, but they've got an expiration date as well. So what's their, their final goal that they must do? Teach others also. And you see how it works. Oliver mentioned the four generations. It's Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. This is the four generations in this verse of discipleship. And that chain goes like an engine. It now just cycles back on itself and it doesn't stop. From Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also. And you're among the others also. Right? We've inherited the gospel from these men. We're in the chain. And you need to participate in, in the chain of discipleship. This is how the church multiplies and thrives. 
You have to multiply leadership, multiply disciplers. That's all we're talking about here. To some people, the term leader is intimidating, but the term discipler, that should just be part of your identity. That's like saying Christian. You should be a discipler at at any level, even if you're just on level one. Be a discipler. And you are called, first, you just be one of the faithful. How about that? You just be one of those faithful men or women. And you be discipled. That should be your first step, actually, as you enter the church as a new believer. Be discipled. Be faithful. And as you grow, well, teach others also. Now you enter the chain. And you find someone. You want to be on the lookout for someone faithful. And say, how would you like to get together and just talk about the faith and study the Bible? And you just start entrusting the gospel as you guard the, the treasure of, of the sound words, the message of Christ. This is what we're all called to do. And can you just imagine, though, if you have an entire generation or if you have a, a set of church leadership, that they were unfaithful to this task where they did not pass on the gospel to the next generation. Maybe the guys, the, maybe the leaders were stellar, but they didn't pass it along. What would happen? Just a generation later, demise, downfall, division. No one knows the treasure. No one has the treasure. If they do, they're not guarding it. They're not mature. It would spell the end. You want a case study in that? Think of Solomon. In fact, turn real quick to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. Solomon, third king of Israel, son of David. You remember what made Solomon unique? He had what gift from God? A special gift? Wisdom, the supernatural wisdom. And tell me, if you remember, what were some of Solomon's leadership successes as king? Under his king, kingly rule, what could he boast of? Okay, wives, buildings, yeah, lots of building projects. Yeah, a couple of people mentioned in the wives, we'll get to that. (laughs) Anything else? Peace, peace and prosperity. I mean, there's some fighting, but he expanded the borders. The, under Solomon, the largest borders ever. Oliver? Yeah, there's a well-oiled machine. They were the, but right at that time, Egypt was down, Assyrians were down. Israel, under Solomon, was the regional superpower, the only time. But they were on top. Solomon was, was doing really well. He's kind of like maybe Trump, you might say. Not the most moral man, but he could tout the greatest economy and the strongest military. And he was, he was doing well in the time. Solomon was warned by God, though. God had given him this amazing gift of wisdom. But wisdom, unapplied, doesn't do you much good. Especially when it came to the leadership of Israel, things were good. God was blessing them as promised, but Solomon needed to be extra faithful to raise up the next leaders. That primarily was his sons to be the next king. Need to raise them up to lead or else it could all go real south real fast. In verse, 1 Kings 9, let's see, look at verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now it came about, this is right after the temple has been dedicated. So this is, this is the height. They've just dedicated the temple and God himself visited and blessed Solomon. And God, God's going to speak to him. It says, Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord the king, and the king's house. And all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, 
I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me, I have consecrated this house, which you have built, by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Verse 4, as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But, verse 6, but if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, And the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods, and worshiped them, and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. This is a serious warning. The, the, the pinnacle of blessing, they've got the land, the largest borders ever, peace, prosperity, the king's house finished, most importantly, the tabernacle, the first temple, rather, the, the first permanent structure temple. God has blessed it. It's, it's the greatest blessing they've ever experienced. This is when God gives such a, a stern warning. He says, look, keep it up. Follow David. Seek me with a pure heart. But if you don't, or if your sons don't, it's all going to come crumbling down. You will receive the cursings promised back in the law. You got the blessings for obedience, but the curse for disobedience. So do what is right. Verse 6, but if you or your sons turn away from following me, God would cut them off. So what should have Solomon, especially that, that phrase in verse 6, you or your sons, turn away. Just from that, what should have Solomon taken away from this warning? What action item should Solomon have taken away? Yeah, to raise up his sons. Like, I better get to work here to making sure my sons know the Lord and follow the Lord and don't turn away from the Lord. Did Solomon do this? No, he did not. Solomon is known as one of the greatest parenting failures in all of Scripture. In fact, I take it, I usually take to believe that he wrote, we don't know for sure, but he wrote most of Proverbs later in life, after his children were probably grown or near grown, uh, appealing to them to change their ways. I, I tend to believe that his children were already wayward when he wrote Proverbs, appealing to his sons to, to turn to the way of the Lord. We don't know that for sure, but that's just what I surmise. But Solomon himself strayed. You go on to read chapter 10. You go on and read to chapter 11 of 1 Kings. We find Solomon going to all the places God told him not to go. I've said this before. I heard it from an old professor. You know, God basically commanded Solomon not to multiply gold, girls, and giddy up. Just a little three. You guys remember that from years ago? So the alliteration, no gold. He's like, not to multiply gold, trust in the Lord. Don't store up wealth for yourself. Not to multiply wives or, you know, girls, which he certainly did, but to be faithful to the Lord. They would take his heart away from the Lord. Not to multiply giddy up horses, military might. 
he commanded Solomon, you don't need a strong military. I'm your military. But Solomon did all three anyway. He, he multiplied gold girls and giddy up. You'll remember it now. That'll stick in your head. And he goes astray. You know that. His heart goes astray himself. And he's not faithful to train up his sons. End of chapter 11, he dies. And his son, Rehoboam, becomes king in his place. And then what happens? Well, I think we'll just have enough, we'll have just enough time to read this. So let's, let's read it. You know the account, but it's, it's rich. So let's read it. Chapter 12, turn to 1 Kings 12 now. Look at verse 1. We'll read, we'll read a good chunk here. So just stay with me. 1 Kings 12, verse 1. Solomon has died. It says, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they set, sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Jeroboam was a leader of the people who threatened Solomon, so he was eventually exiled. Now Solomon's dead. Jeroboam's coming back, trying to determine, should I throw my allegiance? And a lot of people followed Jeroboam behind Solomon's son Rehoboam or not. So they say to Rehoboam, verse 4, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which you put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. Verse 6, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Does that sound like wise counsel? I think it does. Just just humble yourself. Give them this request. Show them you care for them. Just show them this kindness. They'll they'll follow you. But verse 8, But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. You already know where this is going at that point. That's just forget it. If you're going to go to that council, talk about Proverbs. Talk about not listening to Proverbs of wise counsel and plans succeed with wise counsel. Yeah, there you go. Verse 9. So he said to them, what counsel do you give me that we may answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us. The young men who grew up with him spoke to him saying, thus you shall say to this people who speak to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. It's pretty straight up words right there. Probably enough to tell you, not the wisest counsel. Sounds like, that sounds like teenage counsel right there. Verse 12, Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, 
For it was a turn of events from the Lord, that he might establish his word, which the Lord had spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. By the way, this is earlier in 1 Kings, but God had already promised to Jeroboam that the kingdom would divide and he would give to Jeroboam the ten northern tribes. This is God providentially working through Rehoboam's disobedience to divide the kingdom. You know how that goes. But verse 16, to finish, it says, When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. And as the rest goes on, this was the beginning of the, the civil war between Israel. Judah in the south, Judah, Benjamin south, the other ten tribes in the north. Jeroboam would be their first king and widely regarded as one of the most wicked kings that they would have, setting up the two golden calves for them to worship and so forth. And this was just the beginning of the end for Israel. Demise, downfall, the destruction of the temple that God warned them of didn't happen right, right yet. Didn't happen right away. This is where it began. Well, really, we could trace it back to, you know, where it began with Solomon, who did not train up his children in the way they should go, who did not raise up leaders to take over and to shepherd his people. He did not faithfully entrust the treasure given to him. Talk about a treasure. He had divine, a divine gift of wisdom entrusted to him, but he, he didn't pass it on. Or if he did, too little, too late. And uh, this is the result. You can do a whole series of leadership lessons from this passage alone. I mean, this is a, a case study in poor leadership. Rehoboam was young, immature, unwise, hasty, proud, arrogant, self-willed, selfish, ungracious, forsook wise counsel, accepted foolish counsel. You could go on. All those is a whole lesson. And we're not going to do that right now. But for now, we're simply stressing just one point. The point of our whole time, it's the importance of leadership. That's what this first lesson has been about, the importance of leadership. Nations, governments, cities, churches, ministries. As I said at the beginning, they all live and die by their leadership. The church is no different. That we could, we could easily apply from the book of Revelation that a similar we would say warning stands over every local church that the Lord Jesus will remove your lampstand and take you out if you are not faithful to your first love and to walk in his ways. And so many churches have come and gone. They've, they've rised and fallen and, and fallen into division and disarray and disaster. And where does it begin? Some failure in leadership. From here on out, Judah and Israel would know mostly ungodly leaders so where did it lead Israel and Judah? Did they flourish or did they decay? Did their unity grow or was there just divisiveness and destruction? You already know the answer. It's just, it's ancient history now, but that history repeats itself all the time in families, in small groups, in a men's ministry or a women's ministry in a local church. This happens all the time. When you have godly leaders in place at all levels, from the elders and pastors to the small group leaders, just to the people, that's when you see a local church really grow and thrive and preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it takes. It takes everybody. 
But when you have ungodly and unqualified and untrained leaders in place, well, you can expect trouble, division, and decline. may not happen overnight, but they're going down. At least by God's standards, they will not prosper. They will not succeed. They won't honor the Lord. Hey, they might still build a a form of a megachurch, but by God's standards, uh, they're not pleasing to him and, and they're in demise. And so, like I said, this is all really introduction. This whole lesson, introduction to our entire Sunday evening series that begins tonight. We start here with the importance of leadership. Our time is up for now, but I, I hope this just in a sense whets your appetite and shows you why this is needed, why this series, why this lesson plan is needed, is necessary in the life of a church. Even if, even if all of you here never become leaders, formal leaders, if you're never called elder, you're never called deacon, you're never called teacher or small group leader, doesn't matter. You still need this teaching. You need to know the picture of true biblical leadership. If, if, for, any, if for nothing else, that so you might find godly leaders, identify them, follow them, hold them accountable, pray for them, and so forth. We need this teaching, especially those, however, who want to grow as leaders, want to, by God's grace and time, get out in front and bear the burdens of others. Well, this teaching was going to be vital for you as well. And just to finish our time, I might give you a little preview of what's to come. As I've planned this series out, for the most part, it'll have two distinct halves. Part one is all about the preparation for biblical leadership. And part two will be the practice of biblical leadership. The preparation and then the practice of biblical leadership. When it comes to the preparation of biblical leadership, we've learned tonight, lesson one, the importance of biblical leadership. We'll see the mission of biblical leadership, the tools, the identity, the example, the character, the doctrine of biblical leadership. And then getting into the practice of biblical leadership, it'll be a bunch of how-tos, how to study the Bible, how to prepare Bible studies, how to teach Bible studies, how to lead a small group, how to foster accountability in prayer, how to shepherd others. That's when we'll get hopefully more and more practical of just what does it look like? How do you do it? This might be subject to change as it's no surprise for me. It might expand it a little bit here and there, but hopefully this gives you just a little taste of what's to come. I'm very much looking forward to this time just exploring God's word on leadership together with you. It's for the benefit of this church, of you individually, that we would all grow and just link arms in bearing one another's burdens. And then we will, as a local church, individually and corporately, we'll be in good shape and we'll be, I trust, pleasing to the Lord. And we want that blessing, his blessing on a church. And uh, he uses faithful men and women to lead others to that place. So let's be faithful. And we'll, we'll see you next time. We'll keep going. Pray for our time now. Our Lord, we are grateful for this evening just to begin a study, a lesson on biblical leadership. Your word is a treasure trove of leadership lessons. It's, it's much more than that, Lord, but you give us all the wisdom we need for life and godliness, and that includes leadership, how to lead others in the home and in the church. And we need this. We all need this to apply it to our lives. I pray you convict us all this evening to be shepherd-minded, 
Whether or not we ever get the title, that, that doesn't matter. Just give us a heart of a shepherd, which is really just the heart of Christ. That's part of us becoming more like our Savior. He was a shepherd. He cared about lost people. He cared about sheep who were straying. He cared about the hurt and the broken and, and this, this, those who were stumbling in the faith. He went after them. Lord, mature us all that we would have that same heart and raise us all up at various levels, but raise us up to do this work, your work, uh, this is how you use us to build your church. It's to your glory. It's to our good. So we know you will be faithful. Help us to be faithful as well, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.